Welcome to the Revive Fitness and Nutrition Podcast, hosted by Global Nutrition Coach and Personal Trainer, Julie Payton Monk. Julie is bringing together experts from across the world to chat all things fitness, mindset, and body connection. Her goal is to help you challenge your thinking, rebuild your relationship with food, and redefine your fitness. Welcome to Revive Fitness and Nutrition Podcast with your host, myself, Julie Payton Monk. We're on episode 12, which is why are your senses important? So why do your senses matter? And today's guest is someone I came across um, quite unaware, really. So I'll tell you a little bit of a story. Um, I was at the airport browsing the bookshelf, as we would do normally. I'm very much somebody who judges a book by its cover. And this book caught my attention. It was a tagline about unlock your senses and improve your life. Um, I'm very much someone who's always looking for different ways to improve um, the quality of your life, the experiences around you, but also from the perspective of my clients um, and any things that I can learn to pick up and help them also. So I bought the book, but nothing more of it, went on holiday and I could not put this book down. Um, so one, it's a very easy read because it takes you from when you wake up right until you go to bed. Um, and yeah, I literally could not put this book down. I found it fascinating easy read and my husband was like right what you tell me now what are you going to teach me today about my senses because it was just one of those books that you had to tell someone else about it and um, which hence was why i've come back and i've been like how can i make everyone aware of this book and the different things they can learn from it and put into their own life and i'm very much an action taker and i started doing things myself so i've gone through with a highlighter and highlighted the different action points of the things i can start doing and i thought how can i get this out to more people so I reached out to the author, Russell Jones, who very kindly accepted my invite to join me on my podcast today. So welcome, Russell. Thank you. That's a lovely introduction. I'm really glad you enjoyed the book. Thanks, Lottie. Oh, and it's, even the way it's written, I thought just such a say, easy read and something you can relate to. And there's quite a few laughs of things throughout it as well. <laughs> yeah, there were a few more, actually. They got edited out. I was, try- I was really enjoying being quite funny throughout it but I'm really glad you like it I mean that's the point in a way is to make because it's a lot of neuroscience in there and that's been the sort of background for everything I do for a long time and and actually in life and work and in this book it was about trying to make that science um like democratizing it and making it accessible and making it it's sort of just d- delivering it in the simplest possible way and applying it to your life um as, as in an easy way yeah and not make it scary because there's a lot of there's a lot of serious science behind it but it's yeah it's all about trying to make it really accessible and understandable and um, and useful and absolutely and just on that point of neuroscience because i was reading another book after your one which was about the workings of the women's brain and there okay. was bits where that got heavy it got heavy and <laughs> it was like really tough going to read and i think that's a massive difference with your book so definitely accessible to Thank all you. Um, yeah. And you mentioned a bit about science, so just so people get a feel for you, who Russell is professionally, but also on your own life, what, what's your drivers? What's the things that motivate you? Oh, that's a tough, I don't know what does motivate me. I mean, I love working and I love doing new different things. And I guess always creative uh, endeavours motivate me. Um, I began when I was younger writing music and producing music. Um, 
and uh, yeah, I mean that was my main goal when I went to university was just to to get music equipment and get a deal, which I did, and wrote sort of instrumental beatsy uh, music when from my sort of late teens to probably late twenties, um, and always wanted to do music and film and loved sound and really loved the emotional impact that that sounds have. I think that was actually more fascinating to me than um, than really writing music. And I'm, I've always been fascinated about, about how emotionally affected we are by things we hear, like in cinema and stuff. Um, so yeah, motivationally-wise, I mean, and as long as I'm doing something different and creating and doing new things, which is I've found a way to do that um, somehow in my life, to do, whether it's an event or designing something or um, doing talks or writing the book, um, so yeah, I guess I guess I'm motivated by that. I've never really thought about it, but I just like to be doing different things and new things all the time. Is it one of those things where if someone piques your interest, you're kind of oh, we'll see what happens with that, and it kind of grows and evolves as you go along? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I've just always wanted to just yeah to try out new things and, and have a variety in in my life in um, in my work, um, and I've never worked in a sort of day-to-day job really for someone I never have so and that's not I didn't think it was intentional it's just the way I've always done it but I guess looking back uh, I was just naturally driven to always trying to forge something myself I guess. So how do we get from that creativity to neuroscience then because as you mentioned at the start there you can get bogged down in a lot of the science it's not always accessible how do those two things together? Right. Well, that's, I guess, a little bit of the story of the evolution of me getting to this point and, um, and my agency that I had. So I run a, um, a sort of sensory branding agency or marketing and branding design agency. Um, so I started from making music and I guess realizing that I was never going to make um, millions just making the music I make because it was quite underground, uh, um, independent sort of sounding music. And I started doing music, um, for events and creating experiences. And I was fascinated in this idea, or not just music, sound as well. I was fascinated with this idea of how we can affect experiences by changing the sound in a space. And I was doing some work for for some brands uh, around this, about sound in retail spaces and um, and whatnot. And I literally dropped, I was really interested in, I'm I'm a glutton as well, I'm, I'm obsessed with food. Um, and I sent an email to Heston Blumenthal about 15 years ago or so, um, because I'd been, you know, hearing these amazing things about the fat duck and this idea of this meal as an experience. And I just sent an email saying, I'm interested in seeing how we can use sound as part of an eating experience. And I got a reply saying, come down. And I went down and met with uh, a guy called James Jockey Petrie, who was Heston's right-hand man at the time and ran the experimental kitchen. And I came down armed with a load of ideas of things that we could try out about externalizing taste, having sounds that sort of sounded like a taste. And I had no idea that there was actually a scientific sort of study in this area. Um, And they had this idea for a dish called Sounds of the Sea, which they had already got quite a way along with. They may have even already had it on the menu, but they weren't happy with it. Um, And it's a dish where you get served sashimi uh, and edible sand made of tapioca and seaweed and you get, listen to waves crashing and the idea is that this soundtrack of the seaside um, makes the fish taste fresher and the dish more enjoyable 
So I said, okay, well, I'll do the sound for it because it wasn't quite right what they had there. So I did the sound for it. And then um, through that, got introduced to a guy called uh, Professor Charles Spence, who is a neuroscientist who works at the Crossmodal Research Laboratory in Oxford, uh, where they were testing these things and actually proving that the sound of uh, waves crashing made oysters taste fresher and more enjoyable, but didn't make bacon taste fresher and more enjoyable. Uh, and the sound of a farmyard did, the sound of traffic jam didn't. And this idea that a congruent sound genuinely changed people's enjoyment and perception of flavour by uh, evoking these emotions and memories that were, you know, in congruent with whatever you were tasting. So that was this sudden spark to me that I was, I was really interested in how, like I said, we can sound and music affect us emotionally, but actually changing taste, that was interesting for me. So I think that just unlocked this kind of passion. So, right, I want to know more about this. So I just started reading all of these um, neuroscientific papers. Um, sound can change taste. And then we did another study quite soon after that. I kind of then started taking ideas to, uh, to Oxford saying, well, I want to try and prove this. And the next thing I wanted to do, which I'd realized no one had done, people had realized, uh, people had started mapping tastes to sounds, as in um, give people a bit of caffeine and sit them in front of a keyboard and say, where on this keyboard does that taste exist? And they would discover that most people put it quite low down. And when you give someone sugar, they'll put it high up. So we, there was all this research showing that, um, for instance, bitterness was low down and long sort of noises and sweetness was high up, but no one had ever written a piece of sound or music that was sweet and one that was bitter and actually then seen if we could change flavor. So that was my idea. Let's create this, make one thing and make it taste sweet and then make it taste bitter by playing two different sounds, but it's exactly the same thing. So I came up with that idea. The guys at the Fat Duck made um, something called cinder toffee, which is a burnt yeah. sort of toffee uh, thing. So sweet and bitter. I created these sounds. We went up to Oxford University. Uh, we had people sitting in a booth. Um, they had a one sound playing and this arm comes through this curtain and gives them some cinder toffee. They taste it and they judge how sweet it is, how bitter, how much they like it, where in the mouth the taste is. And then the sound changes, arm comes through again, gives them another piece of food. Little do they know it's exactly the same thing both times. It's still exactly the same cinder toffee. So the first time they say it's sweet, the taste is at the front of their mouth and they really like it. The second time they say it's really bitter, the taste is in the back of their mouth and they don't like it. And it was exactly the same piece of food. The only thing that changed was the sound that they were hearing through headphones. Um, so that was my first study that I had my name on, a, a research paper, peer-reviewed published paper with my name on it, um, empirically proving that we could modulate taste perception with sound. Um, and that was it for me then. So I was fascinated. We can change uh, taste. Can we change smell? Proves that we can. We did it with perfume. We, we can change the, the, the smell of um, perfume with the same sounds. Um, and then, okay, well, sound can change texture as well. And um, smell can change texture and smell can change color. And I just started getting fascinated by this area of science. And I think from the creative side, what I realized was there's this body of research out there really amazing insights but no one was really doing anything with it and I, I found that I had a I don't know a natural propensity for taking this into these insights and applying them 
initially to create events or um, help brands um, design products um, or music for their adverts and things like this, or, you know, the shape of a glass that would um, enhance or change the taste of a whiskey or something. Um, but I, I found that I, 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 that's what I enjoyed. I would read the papers, the research papers, find these brilliant insights and then apply them um, to, uh, to problems and, and, and find creative solutions or use them creatively. Um, and then that became the basis of my agency that, um, that then ran for a good 10 or so years, or still does, but I've scaled it back personally because I'm writing now. But um, uh, yeah, that's a long ranting version of description of how I got to where I was. So yeah, I mean, it, it, what I found I love doing is applying, a, being creative with the science, finding the science, finding the insights, and then, and then doing something creative with them, or thinking of something that hasn't been proven and proving it and then because i want to do something creative with what i sort of instinctively think might be the insight that we'll sort of gather from a piece of research and i think that is just fascinating in terms of people who think you've got to have a plan in terms of what you want to do over the next five years actually take what you enjoy doing explore it when things pique your interest don't ignore it and get bogged down in the day-to-day -day life actually go and explore it because you never know what might come of it ultimately Absolutely. I mean, I would never have been able to sit down and write a business plan saying I'm going to start an agency that um, comes up with multi-sensory neuroscientifically based solutions for brands and product design and research and events experiences. There's no way. We just grew organically um, because, yeah, every time I discovered something new, that was like, right, well, I want to do that. Then. And also... Um, which actually I would say was maybe a little bit of a, um, always a little bit of a problem with the agency, uh, and still is, is that we can do anything. We can run a research, we can run a study for R&D. I can design the sounds inside your luxury uh, sports car, or we can put on a, an event for a, a, a sensory immersive meal. Um, I never wanted to say we just do that, we just do that, because I want to do it all. And like I said, variety is what I really love. Um, and the way you can apply this science, you can apply it to everything. So yeah, I would have never been able to plan what I do. If you just got to roll with it and, and every time you discover something new, you think, well, I can do that as well. Or we can do that and kind of falls under our, our umbrella. So let's just do it. And I think it's the fact that it's something quite basic that we all have, but we obviously don't utilize on a daily basis because we're not really aware of it or we take our senses for granted. So why, Russell, do you think we've become a bit disconnected from our senses as consumers, the things we're not aware of, that as individuals day to day, we're just a bit switched off to our senses? We are. Um, I don't think if we, we've sort of become that way. I just think we naturally are in as much as, well, there's a few, we don't realise how much sound in the background affects our feelings and our behavior or the fact that a, an aroma in the room might affect us or the echo of a space you know if you're in a retail space or even silence i mean think about a bank uh, you know, a high street bank so silent you feel like it's a gallery you socially you can't talk you're not allowed to speak up so then you don't want to interact with someone or talk to staff um i just think we, we've we're really not focused on or aware of how much the uh, sort of environment around us affects our behavior and our emotions and our well-being we are naturally 
as human beings very visually focused um and we just think in that way i made we've been trained in that way a lot the world is very visually focused um so when you know when people design a space um design a shop or design an event design a home design a town center they don't think about the sound of it they don't think about how you can use smell or color or lighting and color to um to enhance people's um experience of the space enhance their well-being um you look at offices i mean they are just so uninspiring the research shows how much better um like plant life uh, you know has the effect on it about um about changing the sound in a space about the use of color people make more clerical errors or typing errors in white rooms than any other room but why are most offices white um so yeah i just think we the world has evolved to be designed very visually and ignore the importance of our other senses and we don't realize i think it's a revelation like you said which is wonderful to hear when you read the book and you hear about this it's instinctive it makes sense but we don't day to day think about how a sound or an echo or a, or a construction works outside or a rattling air conditioning or or you know is actually affecting how we feel so if we feel a bit off um we we'll blame ourselves in a way and we don't control the environment you don't walk into a room and put something on or put a soundscape of bird song on or things like that um so we're just not not not, not used to it and i think we had a bit of an insight with obviously the lockdown we were just talking about this and the fact that the world was quieter so even with traffic and now things are back to the pace that they are and especially when i came back from holiday living in the city the assault on sound of just like you say construction work buses all the noise that comes when you come from a quieter place where you just hear the sea to yeah. suddenly that traffic um, and you can feel yourself getting tense with it and it's like Absolutely. shut the door shut the window it's just irritation what you can put on to block out that sound so i don't know if it's a result of reading your book and i came back just fully aware or if it was just from going from the silence but either way it just I noticed the tension within my body from the sound that was around me. Yeah, I think that's actually true. I mean, yeah, the World Health Organization did a few years ago put sort of atmospheric environmental sound on the list of one of the sort of greatest threats to our mental health. Um, one study that I think I referenced in the book said that for every decibel uh louder in a town center the amount of um, uh, um antisocial behavior and assaults especially between strangers goes up exponentially um yeah the quite if a quieter world is a sort of nicer gentler world and we should try and think about that but also it's not it's about the right noise as well isn't it and sort of yeah we we you know you can't focus on every sound around you all the time we'd go mad so we naturally just block a lot of uh, a lot of sound in our periphery out but it's there always there and we don't focus on it in a way like for instance in cinema you watch a film you don't necessarily focus on the sound but you're aware how much it's affecting your emotions how much it can make a scene really tense or or really happy or really comic comedic um but we don't think that way in real life it's always there it's always in our background but we're not focused on it focusing on it and we don't realize how much it is actually affecting our, uh, uh, our, yeah, our anxiety levels or our productivity or general well-being or, or, or anything. Yeah, and I'm quite 
big into my music as well, especially with being a group fitness instructor. And some of the hit classes I do, it's obviously high bass, high energy music. And I have to drill my routines and learn them for the timings. And mm. some days I'll know not to put that on because it's too early in the morning, like seven o'clock is too early for my husband to listen to that music. <laughs> so you'll be like, I can't, I can't handle it this time. So I think there is that different awareness depending on what you're doing professionally in your life. And I know I hate having the TV on in the background. For me, that is just literally noise. Um, mm. Whereas my husband would prefer to have the TV on, whereas I'll go for music over that. And yeah. I think it's that thing, especially when we're all now living in, you know, confined spaces where we're not necessarily getting out as much as what we were doing. And how you start to learn about the people you live with and what sounds wind them up and what sounds help relax them and vice versa. Yeah, that's interesting. And everyone will have different tastes. And like you said, times of the day will move through our natural circadian rhythm. We're better at certain things during the day and it's better to do certain things during the day. I just would like people or want to urge people to just use it more in a constructive way and sound and scent and lighting and materials and things around you. And it's about, for the best result, it's about combining them. It's about the best aroma that goes with the sound, then you get this what's called the super additive effect, where um, the two, it's like alchemy, the two work together and will enhance that moment, whatever you're doing at the best as possible. People's personal taste obviously comes into it, but it's just about having the knowledge and um, to, of what is affecting you and what's around there and then controlling it in a way that is obviously meets your tastes. Uh, um, choosing things, the environment that obviously please you because that's one of the most important things it's got to be stuff you enjoy um but if you're just aware of it then you can start using it to your benefit using the sensory environment around you to, to help you rather than hinder you and we mentioned about being very visual just kind of driven that way in terms of visual and i know with my clients at the moment what a lot of people are kind of struggling with is um i know you referenced it as a zoom cave previously russell which i love is the fact that we're now living in a Zoom cave. And I know a lot of my corporate clients are, audios have gone. It's all about Zoom and having your face on Zoom and staring to show that you're engaged, paying attention. And they can easily go, you know, four or five hours back-to-back Zoom meetings. Um, and one of the things I've been talking to them about is trying to get breaks in between. And that whole experience of, is all about trying to connect with people, but it feels like because the hours are clocking up on Zoom, actually, if anything, it's having more of a detrimental effect now. Is yeah. there any thoughts you've got around how we can use our senses to help improve that Zoom cave experience? <laughs> yeah, the Zoom cave. I do. I mean, I'm thinking about this a lot at the moment, obviously, and I'm trying to. Th- I'm thinking about ways in which maybe we could start working with uh, with companies or just with people who are remote working and, and stuck in this because yeah like you say there's this monotony of the zoom case sometimes you don't know what meeting you're in <clears throat> you'll move from one to the other there's a lack of connection with people in your team and there's this sort of um, this yeah lack of variety so there's a few things that you can do um one of them i would say is variety and like you're saying I mean, if you're working on your laptop, then just move from the kitchen table to the lounge for the next meeting or to sit outside or go up to your sort of office or wherever you can. Don't just move, even if it's just from your office chair to the sofa for the next one. Um, to bring a bit of sensorial variety as in your, your, your environment will just then naturally change. Um, 
and to sort of delineate between different meetings. But I think there's a lot we can do um, with changing the sensory environment yourself and also sharing that with other people. So say you have, you're in a meeting with about one client project and you have a little sensory pack for that. It might be a, the sense of freshly cut grass, the sound of birdsong in the background, maybe an object that you put on, you have on the table in front of you. And before that meeting begins, you spritz that in the air. You might even change your outfit. I mean, enclosed cognition is a big thing. You, we behave in a way that's um, in accordance with sort of clothing we're wearing, accessories we have on. So you might put something on. Um, you might spritz something in the air. Um, you might put on this background of birdsong. And the other people who are in this meeting might do it as well. And then you've got a sort of shared sensory experience. You're connected to that person in the same way because you have your atmosphere, your senses are being stimulated and triggered in the same way as the other people. So, um, yeah, I think there's ways we can do this. Maybe we can, um, and then if you move on to another meeting, you might have another sensory kit for that, which is another aroma that you spritz. You have a nice little break in between, you sit down, you make a different drink, you spritz someone in the air, uh, something in the air, you put on something else. And uh, and then you have that meeting. Now you've got a, a sort of, you've changed the sensory environment. It's almost recreating this kind of being in the office together and having shared experiences and not big, grand shared experiences, but shared experiences of all walking into one meeting room and there's a smell of coffee in the air and there's a particular se selection of biscuits on the side that everyone has. And these things are kind of, small nuanced parts of our daily uh, existence in, a, in an office environment when we're with people where we're sharing these little moments and in those moments when you're discussing something like all oh, that biscuit taste that's really nice or oh, have you had that tea that cinnamon tea is good um where we kind of have these moments of what's some sometimes called profitable happenstance when you just start talking casually and um it's out of those moments that are more informal that ideas form and the connections are made where you don't get that like you say in a zoom exactly what you said you'll kind of feel like you're there just to show that you're working that you're being sort of observed and you're just proving that i'm yeah I, you know I'm, I'm being productive um so yeah there's a really interesting stuff i think we could explore about about creating sensory variety for yourself but also um, connecting yourself sensorially to other people so you've got some kind of shared experience. And then there's obviously, when you then get into it, what is that sensory kind of prescription, as I say, for, um, for each project or each bit of work you're doing? What is the sound, the smell? Where do you sit? Um, what do you wear? Then you can choose things that are specifically designed to actually enhance whatever you're doing at that time. So if you're being, say, you have to be really accurate and you want to just be really productive when you're doing something that's kind of quite task orientated. You've just got to check off a list to do something relatively sort of um, boring in a way, repetitive. Um, then there's a kind of sensory, sensory prescription that will help you focus and do that. Whereas if you want to be really creative, if you need to think differently, if you need to connect ideas and, and process sort of information, then there's a different set of sensory elements, a sensory prescription that can help you with that. Um, so you can move place and spray different things that will in the air, different smells and put on different sounds that will bring about different types of thinking and make you more productive 
depending on the task that you're that's at, that's at hand. And I think it's people going, well, wait a minute, actually, what does that look like practically? But it's thinking about if you were in the office and you were going to a meeting room, what are the things you'd see in that meeting room? What would be different? Probably colour walls would be different. The seating yeah. would be different. Then, as you said, Russell, the smells may be different. Or if you're going to have a one-to-one -one catch up with somebody, chances are you'd be going and getting a coffee or a tea. So yeah. actually looking at the things you were doing previously that you maybe just took for granted because that was just there, then how can you recreate that in your home? So as much as we're saying sense and the sensory prescription, it's not that difficult to recreate. And that's where people might be like listening and going, how am I going to do that? But actually it's not that difficult. And I know a client I have who's reverted back to wearing her office wear. So in the morning she's putting her office clothes on and the hours she's working because that's what's helped focus her mind. And I know I've got into tea, like all different types of tea during lockdown. That's been my thing for whatever reason. But it's just mixing it up and having something different. And I'd say when I'm meeting with clients, I'll sit on the sofa or I'll sit in the office chair or I'll even be in the kitchen. And I'll hear them go, they'll go, oh, you're somewhere else today. And just how much more it engages them because you've mixed up your environment as well. So I think it is really powerful. Yeah, absolutely. I do. I think I'm really agreeing. I'm doing everything absolutely right there. And it isn't difficult. You know, you say, okay, there's going to be a different scent for this meeting and a different scent for this meeting. Um, but it doesn't, you don't have to have something that you spray. You could make a different flavored tea that will bring in aroma that way. Uh, you can quite easily get off the shelf kind of scents of, say, cinnamon or, or, or freshly cut grass is a really good one. Uh, which I like a lot because it conjures up nostalgic memories. It feels fresh. It makes you feel like you're on the outside. Um, they are easy to get hold of. Um, and it's easy to just, yeah, move space or put something else on or make yourself a different tea. Um, and you can access background soundscapes, the sound of a cafe, the sound of an office, the sound of a kind of summer park, the sound of tropical waves. Um, you can access them very, very easily. I mean, I've actually got loads on my sensebook website but on pretty much any sort of uh, uh, online site like youtube or spotify there are background soundscapes um, which is an interesting thing again to think about not just music just putting on the hubbub of a cafe so there's chatter and noise around you suddenly fills that empty void um in a really nice and conducive way to working so it is easy to do it's just thinking about it isn't it it's about it's about again i think not taking your environment for granted and just leaving it as is and just thinking well i'm here at the computer and this is made for the day it's actually uh thinking about focusing on and then controlling where you can the environment i mean yes you can't paint the colors of your walls different for every meeting but you can have a different colored notepad for each each meeting or each piece of work you're doing so you can bring color in in a really simple way that, that way there's ways of doing it that that um, doesn't require huge investment or huge changes to your, to your environment and i think it's part of accepting that actually nobody thought of going for as long as what it has done in terms of working from home and i know a number of clients whose offices are now closing down for good so that's them at home forever more forever how long that is and um, i know other people are talking about another four or five months before they get back into an office environment so i've started speaking to clients about their strategy going into the winter months in terms of lighting and you know we've got these satellites for you know vitamin d and um, but actually what does that look like in terms of your lighting your environment when you maybe find it more challenging to go outside when the weather's not so great and get natural daylight 
So I don't know if you've done any work, Russell, around things for winter sense-wise, what people can do to help them through those winter months that are up and coming. Well, no, I mean, not specifically. Like I said, I mean, this is just becoming a really fascinating area, a way of, of, of an area to apply this, um, these insights and this science now quite urgently. Um, but there are facts that we know. I mean, we know that daylight is obviously so brilliant for you. It's so good for, for your focus, for your productivity, for your circadian rhythm, which means you can get good sleep. Um, but other substitute to that lighting, uh, uh, bright lighting during the day does really help. There have been studies in offices where they've put um, lighting of various levels on different floors and measured people's productivity and then general well-being and how much they like being there and how good quality of their sleep. The point I would say about the winter months is get brightness and daylight during the day as much as possible but don't keep it going until the evening because you do mess up your circadian rhythm when you do that. Don't just have artificial light on bright till 10 o'clock at night in order to keep up productivity. It's the worst thing you do. Um, but you but get as much of it during the day as you can. Um, but then I think the other alternatives you can look at are about brightening up your environment and freshening it up during the day. Uh, if it is constantly raining, raining outside or grim, then you can sort of counteract it. Bring in aromas that remind you of, of sort of freshness, of, of, of openness. I mean, you can get a bit of sun cream out and rub it on the back of your hand if you're doing something. Conjure up memories that, that, that evoke happy emotions, that evoke positive uh, feelings. Um, and they will intrinsically help you um, uh, emotionally during the day and bring out sort of yeah greater things uh, so yeah it's i think it's just again it's about sort of counteracting what's around you bringing freshness into your home bringing fresh herbs in things that just smell and look fresh uh, that remind you of the outdoors lots of the benefits that we get from nature biophilia being up out amongst nature um, has been shown to even uh, have the same effects when you're just looking at nature or when you're just reminded of nature through a smell or even through an image. I mean, change your desktop image to a beautiful shot of a, of a, of a lovely summer park. Uh, when people have been exercising, we know that exercising in nature, you get more out of it. If you're outside, like green exercise, you get a lot more physically out of it and it helps you mentally. Um, but there's been research showing that when people exercise in front of a video of like running through trees or cycling through trees, that they got more out of it, that they performed better, that they, their respiratory rate uh, went up, that they got more, so that they felt better afterwards, less anxiety afterwards. So you don't have to be in nature um, to feel the effects of it. You can just have the smells of it, the sounds of it, and images of it. Uh, and I think that's the one thing we can do in winter a lot, is just to counteract the, uh, uh, the outside by bringing some freshness inside. And I think that's such an important point about the fact that you actually don't need to be in nature to get the benefits from it. You can create that in your home because I think a lot of people say, oh, there's a time challenge and um, time challenge to get out, to go and do this and plan whatever. Well, actually you can create that in your home. So there's a time saving right there. You just need to think about how to bring that into your home and you can benefit. So if you're working out at home, what can you do around these things? Um, and I know people, some of the people say, oh, I'm struggling for motivation. It's not the same working out from home. Well, actually, what are the things you can do again to change that environment? 
and I know Russell something I've been trying from your book is about scents on your towels so the scent before you work out the scent whilst you work out and then afterwards as well and I've been sharing that with some of my clients because I do a lot of high intensity training and so I've started trialing that out and then the different scents of while I work out to kind of that push and that motivation to achieve more but also to mix up your environment so it's not just another 7am zoom workout yeah, absolutely. And that's lovely that you're trying those out. I and mean, again, they're all neuroscientifically proven effects on how um, certain sense will gonna bring you, uh, enhance your focus, uh, actually physiologically enhance, enhance your respiratory rate. Peppermint was shown to help people's breathing uh, during exercise and, uh, and also their sort of attention and, um, and focus. And then, yeah, how you can counteract that and then slow yourself down on the other side and use again use these things well to really really enhance enhance your lives um, and yeah one of the interesting things in the exercise uh, section of the book that i was fascinated with was that calm down that afterwards how um you've got to keep up the sort of high octane sort of tempo for a little while afterwards for your sort of cortisol and your body to sort of process but then really slow it down i think they said about 40 minutes of really ambient music and even interspersed with natural soundscapes has been shown to uh, help the body relax and get more out of it and you don't then move into the next phase of your day all stimulated and full of cortisol you're ready to move on your body is settled um, and doing these things to sort of take you out of one phase and then move comfortably into another again it's a really important thing because otherwise you're constantly rushing aren't you like you say you're on it you've exercised now i've got to do this now i've got to get, get working Take these moments and sensorially change your environment so it, it delineates between times of the day, your activities, what you're now focusing on now. And you will see the benefits of it because you'll feel like the, the, the environment is changing more than it just being the same place all the time. That's it. And that's why I like to do my class now, my own workout street after. So then I'm not having that sudden stop, rushing doing something else and bringing back up again. Then that sudden stop. That allows me to do the workout part and then the wind down bit and as you said normally what you do is you know you cool down stretches you switch to your softer music straight away but i told my guys last week it's been proven that we're going to keep this high energy music while we cool down and stretch because it'll help and they're like what yeah, <laughs> yeah. Bend and then calm it down definitely yeah but yes these are things to do from the moment when you get up um you like brightness again when you wake up in the morning you want brightness because we want to be waking up with the bright, beautiful sunshine, but we can't do that in winter months. We may be getting up while it's still dark, but if you can't open the curtains and get beautiful glaring sunshine in to wake you up, then just do turn on the lights bright. It will have a similar effect. Um, it's been shown that you will be much more likely to uh, eat healthier things for breakfast if it's brighter. And also if you're getting fresh scents, like I said, if you walk into the kitchen and there are loads of pots of fresh herbs and you smell mint and basil, you will be much, much more likely to have a saintly bowl of goodness for your breakfast than you would to uh, make yourself something a bit indulgent. Um, so you can, yeah, bring in this freshness, bring in this brightness. It influences your behavior and it influences your psychological state. And I think what you touched on there around food as well, because we know a lot of people have had a challenge during lockdown of eating and feeling like they're constantly eating. And I know clients normally as we come into the winter months will talk about the hibernation mode they feel like they're going into, where it doesn't matter what they're eating, they can get enough. And as a nutrition coach, I love watching, I'm a bit of a, I've discovered I'm a data geek. They're getting to send me through pictures of everything they eat and drink all day long. 
And it's amazing how sending that visual rather than gathering the data makes people look at their food differently. But also it's interesting in terms of the patterns around the habits, the colors, and you can see the more kind of beige food. This is something I've learned from my clients. We talk about beige food, there's been you know, a discussion around it for a while, but actually once they eat it, they're just not satisfied and then they'll go looking for other foods. Mm. So it's that thing about actually bringing light in during the winter or the light sense will also help with maybe that if you've had a challenge around overeating, for example. Yeah, that's fascinating that you're not, because we want to be sensorily stimulated and so we naturally do. It's what makes life rich. So the more colour on your plate, then the more, you know, you, you might not be getting as much sort of food, but you're getting so much beauty and vibrancy in, in colour, then that's sort of satiating you in a different way. So that's really fascinating. I like that a lot. I mean, I know that there's some really fascinating stuff about the colour of the plate as well that you eat off. And we eat less off of um, red and blue plates than we would do off of a white plate. Um, you feel fuller, quicker, more quickly. But also you're more aware of what you're eating um, because of the contrast. So if you can really see the food of it bursting out through the vibrant colouring and contrast to the different coloured plate, um, then you're just more aware of it. Like you say, exactly in the same way that if you're taking a picture of it, you're just making yourself focus on it for a moment and be more aware of it. And perhaps that's the thing. And it's a lot about what I'm talking about is about that focusing, not just being on autopilot and actually focus on these things around you. And as soon as you stop and look at what you're eating and focus on it and have to sort of log that, um, then you're so much more aware of it and you won't overindulge or you'll see that that's not going to be satisfying. Yeah, and I find it's even things like I say, don't buy the grab bags of crisps because if you have to open up six packets of multi-pack crisps, you will realise you're doing that as opposed to one big grab bag where people get to the bottom of it and go, oh, it's done and don't really yeah. register how much they've had. So I think it's everything around the senses of that touch and opening action and realising at the end what is empty versus just one bag. It's that difference too. Yeah, absolutely. Well, then you step, you start to touch on something really interesting, which I do a lot in my work, it's all about rituals and behaviours and so how having a process to get to something enhances enjoyment of it and enhances the sort of satiety, the how much you'll, you'll, you'll how good you'll feel after it. Um, so, I mean, there was one particular study done in crisp packets. They had exactly the same crisps in two different packets. One was really difficult to open and one was really easy to open. And people preferred the ones in the really difficult to open pack. They said they were tastier, much better quality. They pay more for them. Um, so if you, uh, there's a few sort of reasons for this. One of them is just delayed gratification. It takes longer to get to something, you enjoy it more. And we want, if you are having a snack and it's a little bit naughty, we want you to enjoy it because then you feel like you, you've had something. You don't want to get to the bottom and go, because mm, then you just open another one. Yeah. Um, but uh, there's also, so you have delayed gratification. But also, we've, and we've seen in MR, fMRI scans um, that expecting a treat fires up the same part of the brain. You get the same dopamine sort of reward signals as actually having it, and sometimes even more so than actually having the treat. So looking forward to something um, is actually better than having it. If you are, another trick that I sort of talk about in the book is, around, is, is planning a treat for later, knowing that you're going to get that in a bit. Do reward yourself. Um, but the planning, the expecting and the waiting is actually better than the getting it. 
And so you will then sort of be firing off these kind of pleasure reward signals in your brain, which just have a positive effect on them. Does that mean if you're woken up, it being a Monday morning or whatever day that you might find it all, you know you're going to have a challenging day for whatever reason. It's almost reversing that mindset of going, right, this is going to be a challenge or I might have to do stuff I don't really enjoy. But actually, I'm going to reward myself with whatever that is later on. Then you've got that to look forward to. It's like I journal and in the journal, there's a question about what can you get excited about today? Excellent, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Just looking forward to something makes it better. And um, this going back to ritual as well. You know, it's not just that delayed gratification. It's when you do have your treat, um, and this has been shown for everything, which is if you're making something, if you're doing something, if, you, if you're involved in its, in its construction, like putting something together, even if it's the simplest thing, and it's like the old Kit Kat sort of running your finger down the middle and stuff. If there's a process or ritual or something you do where you're putting something into it, uh, enjoyment of it, goes through the roof you 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 enjoy it's called the ikea effect sometimes um where people with food or obviously with with ikea furniture you if you've made it if you've done something then you will value it much more highly and enjoy it much more and it will taste much more then this has been done with uh, ice cream where they've made given people ice creams and then you just have to sort of put your own toppings on Whereas other to other people got handed the same ice cream with the toppings already on it. And the people who had to put the toppings on themselves enjoyed it much more, valued it much higher, took longer eating it as well. Um, so it slowed them down because they're savoring every bite so much more. Um, the IKEA effect was done when they got people to make a really boring side table and then auctioned their side table alongside other identical side tables that they didn't make. And people would pay about 27% more for the one that they made, even though it's identical to the one for the, uh, next to it. Um, so yeah, making something yourself and having a bit of a process of a ritual, even if it is just the fact that you get something out and then you add something to it, means you get more out of it and enjoy it more. I'm so, just thinking around takeaways, Russell. So just seen, we've seen a bit of difference, certainly in Edinburgh, where you obviously get your whole meal given to you but also restaurants that have pivoted and diversified, which give you the meal partly cooked, or you've got something to finish off that process. And we've seen that grow and grow. Um, right. And I wonder, obviously I don't know the industry figures, but it'd be interesting to see actually what's the tide difference between, like you say, people enjoying that as an experience, because they're calling yeah. it home restaurant experiences, versus your takeaway where you get everything delivered to you, ready to eat. And as you say, people normally wolf it down, Whereas actually, if you've got the home restaurant experience and there's an element of you plating up or having to heat something up or be a bit involved in that, how much more the experience is enjoyable? I'm sure. And I bet they will be rating that food as better quality um, yeah. and then attributing that to the restaurant where it isn't. It, it would, if that sexy same food was delivered, as you said, like a normal takeaway format, they will rate the ones that they made as better quality. And it's not, it's exactly the same food. It's just the process they've gone through to make it better. I mean, one thing that I do, um, and I was, again, I talk about this in the book about making everything an experience, um, because you'll get more out of everything, is if you do order just a normal sort of like Indian takeaway, decant everything into bowls, yeah, it makes more washing up, but it just looks so much nicer. Put your chutneys and everything into different small bowls, decant everything into nice bowls, serve it up like that, it looks so much better, you've had that process. And it will be so much more enjoyable. You will eat less of it because you'll savour everything so much more and eat more slowly. And then if you couple that with um, 
and a, a, a sort of congruent soundtrack if you put some music on that's going to go with it and turn it into an experience as you would have if you'd gone out and um, then you will enjoy it more it will appear so much better quality to you and I think that's key. One, you'll enjoy it, but two, you'll also not overindulge and maybe have a foot hangover later on to the evening or the next day, which takes away from your enjoyment of it because you feel like you've just had so much food. Yeah, 100%. I think, I mean, I always find you eat less in a restaurant. You feel like you get fuller more quickly when you're in a restaurant because you're being uh, taken on a journey and you're sitting in a different space and you're, you're focusing on the environment and you're talking and you're interacting. Um, and if you can recreate that at home, then you will have that, you'll behave in the same way. And yeah, you won't just sit there in front of the TV and just wolf down an entire curry for three people, just for one, which I'm guilty of myself many times. But um, yeah, so turn it into experience and do this with as much as you can. If we're stuck in, and like we say, going back to, you know, is this is the winter months or if we're working for home, just make everything uh more of an immersive experience and that doesn't mean it has to be a big grandiose event it's just about setting a scene and caring about these small elements in the environment whether it's the service where all music was playing or lighting something a candle because it just turns everything into a moment of wonder i like to sort of talk about a little mini nice experience uh, instead of just right the foods arrive sit down wolf it down oh yeah i feel painfully overindulged now and flop out on the sofa for the rest of the night. Um, it doesn't take that much effort and it enhances your enjoyment so much more. So what would you say to summarise then, Russell, what are your top three things around senses that people, you would say, if you're going to start looking at this, what are the top three things to start doing right now? It's really tough to say my top three things. I get my overall top thing is just focus on your sensory environment, care about it more. Don't take things for granted. Don't sit there with annoying noise going on in the background. Get rid of it. Put something on to mask it out or move. Just uh, and and the same with everything else about lighting and everything. Just just care about your your just the the environment around you. Care about your space. Focus on your senses. Think about what's right, what's not right, and then where you can do change it to be to be beneficial for you. Um, my other thing when it comes from when looking at sound is that don't just think about background uh, sound as music. Think about sound as well. Think about that cafe hubbub, an office chatter sort of background, um, the sound of a picnic in a park, the sound of a gallery. Um, it's been proven that we're more productive when there is a sort of non-repetitive, low-level hubbub of activity around us. So that's why cafes are so good. Um, because there's just this constantly changing low level, but there's no big spikes of noise. There's no big sort of like, you know, things that will shock you out of your state of flow or concentration. Just a low level gentle hubbub of talking, of activity. So think about sound, not just music. And it's very easy to find a soundscape of, of a cafe or an office to put on. I mean, when I was working when, from home and uh, homeschooling my boy, uh, at the start of the lockdown, he uh, we put on a soundtrack of playground in the room. So I had music playing, but underneath it all day was just the sound of a playground. Uh, first of all, he said, well, what's that? But then he sort of it drifted into the background and it just filled it with the sound of company and people and children and, 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 and activity. So yeah, think about sound, not just music. 
Um, and then the other thing I would say is like you've been saying is variety, sensorial variety. Um, if it's just the same all day long, it breeds fatigue and lack of imagination and lack of inspiration. And um, just shake it up. If it's as simple as just taking a laptop and sitting on the sofa or going to the kitchen table, making a different herbal tea, anything you can do to, to change your environment throughout the day um, is going to be beneficial for you. Yeah, and I'd say for anyone, I know we've talked a lot about scents, they are easy to get hold of. I had mine delivered before I even got back from holiday after reading Russell's book. So I'd say things like that, you can look around and you know everything you're mentioning are easy and accessible um, so it's just taking that time out block time out everyone and schedule some time to actually go and look at what can i do to make the difference and if you're a bit stuck on pointers by all means go and get russell's book because that is what's going to help you list the actions and just experiment with it experiment what works for you works for your family for your home um, and once you find out those things are working keep them going don't stop doing them keep them going and mix it up if you feel like you need to change it up again yeah, and that's a really important point when you keep it going. With these things, when you build up a sort of sensory memory with something, a sensory association, then it becomes a trigger. Um, in the same way that smelling something that reminds us, smell maybe reminds you of your nan's kitchen, just suddenly brings an emotion back and the feelings of warmth and of trust and family. Um, so when, the more you do these things, the more you build up that, that association and they become a trigger for that type of thinking or that activity or focusing or being creative or relaxing, whatever it is that you're associating with that smell, that sound, that color, that object. Yeah, the more you do it, the more you build up that, that trigger and that association. Right, Russell, we're now going to put you on the spot with some quick fire lifestyle questions, as I like to call them, just to get more oh, into right. the mindset of Russell Jones. You ready for it? Yeah. <laughs> He's like, what is this? Now it's easy to begin with coffee or tea. You choose one or the other. The big pot next to me now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which is actually too late for me to be drinking it, but um, it's gone cold. Yeah, coffee. Paperback book or an e-book? Paperback book. Yeah, I'm the same. I've when they said like paperbacks dying out, I was like, no, staring at screens, not good. It's always got to be a paperback. No, exactly. I mean, again, you can see behind me. Although I know this is uh, not a visual medium, but record player and everything there, I'm still on records and I've never stopped being everything. If you can touch it, I'm much more into it. Okay, early bird or night owl. I'm naturally a night owl, but I've trained myself to be an early bird, especially in writing the book. I uh, read somewhere that um, you should start writing at six in the morning because there's no distractions, nothing I'm telling you, no one's going to email you. So I, I train myself to do that, be sitting down with a coffee at six every morning and start writing. Um, and I'm in that sort of uh, uh, in that sort of time frame these days. And I do prefer it. I do much prefer it. I'm the same, I'm naturally a night owl, but again, I'd never understand why people would be at gym at seven in the morning, but I've trained myself to be an early bird and like I'm up at 5.15 every morning. It allows me to get my space before everything else happens. And I quite enjoy that quiet time and just that bit of time for me before everything kicks in with clients. Yeah, you feel like you've got a head start on the day. It's a great feeling. But is it still difficult for you? Is it still a struggle? Uh, no, I tend to still, naturally I'll wake up sometimes before my alarm goes off. Um, depends yeah. how heavy the training's been the day before. Um, but yeah, I don't find that a struggle. I naturally just jump up. That's me, ready to go. It's savoury or sweet? Savoury. 
Yeah, I would rather have a starter and a main course than a main course and a dessert. Yeah, same. Pilates or running? Uh, Pilates. Yeah, I do get a bit bored running, and I'm I'm doing Pilates. I just do YouTube videos every morning, but I'm doing that a lot. I've been doing that a lot for the past few months. I I, I really like it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm the same with running, but I did think it depends on your environment for running. That's a big one. I find going around the city running is just not not enjoyable one bit. But we go through woodland forests, then it's all good. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, makes a big difference. All right, thank you very much for your time, Russell. As I said, you've opened my eyes up to a whole world around senses, which I didn't know anything about, what, three weeks ago? So I appreciate you doing that for me. And like I say, I have got all my actions in terms of things that I'm trying and experimenting with and sharing with my clients. But in terms of how people can engage with yourself, Russell, um, I know the book's on Amazon. Um, I imagine it's in all bookshops as well. It should be, hopefully. But yes, Amazon's the sort of easiest way to get it, I guess. Um, yeah, and otherwise, so I have a website, which is sensebook.co.uk, which I've tried to sort of put some of the sensory prescriptions from the book on there and act as a kind of hub for living more multisensorially. And I do have um, Twitters and Instagram that are at SenseBookRJ, um, which I'm the worst at um, social media. It's not my bag at all, but um, I am there. I would definitely say um, get the book, people. The book is going to um, allow you to give this, give you summaries at every chapter. So it'll allow you to easily identify what things you can start doing it and you can prioritise which ones you want to take forward. So I'd say definitely get the book and then you can go and look at um, Russell's website to build on that and get, as he said, the soundscapes and things as well. So thank you, Russell, for sharing your scientific knowledge and making it accessible to us all. I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Cheers.